this phrase intent versus impact. And so I think that's that applies to a situation like this here too. I think most of us can say, oh, my parents did the best that they could. They didn't intentionally harm me. They sent me to the elder or the deacon or the bishop or the whoever, because that's just what they did. They didn't know to question that. Their intent was good and that might be true. Uh, and we don't actually have to discard that, but the impact of what that did to that feels violating, that feels exposing, that can feel like sexual assault, sexual abuse. How our body interprets that is very different than the intent. Hello, friend. I'm so grateful that you're here. You're listening to Your Spin Out is Gorgeous, a podcast of communion, a place where we connect within the full spectrum of humanity. My name is Natalie Q, and I'm your host. I'm a mother, a lover, a friend, and your fellow human. What I want to offer you is liberation from the cultural foists, the narratives that are thrust upon us and guide much of our experience here on the planet. I'm with you on your journey of unlearning. What if everyone you knew was pursuing a life of whole self-integration, witnessing and offering thanks for all that they are, warts and all? That's not just self-care. That's true, unconditional self-love. And I want to be there with you as you set your life and all the things that aren't serving you alight. With you as you bravely consider life from another perspective. Let's explore all things humanity without the veneer, together. Life examined, not just the pretty parts. You in? Let's do this. Hello, and thank you for joining me for this very special episode of Your Spin Out is Gorgeous. Today, my guest is Laura Anderson. She's a therapist specializing in trauma, including religious trauma. She is a PhD candidate and the co-founder of the Religious Trauma Institute. Now, this is a very long episode already, so I won't take so much of your time. I so appreciate you being here wherever you are sitting. If you are an active believer in your religion, thank you for being here with open hearts and open ears. If you have been harmed by religion like me, thank you so much for getting something out of this episode, feeling resonance, feeling seen, feeling heard, witnessed, understood. If you are someone who is in neither of those camps, thank you so much for being here to understand this very real phenomenon that um, is very difficult to personally discuss and acknowledge uh, for the realness um, that it it's very, very real. But also, you know, that is, as always, very difficult for me between my family or different people who are still active believers. And it's also um, in our culture, religion is so... Um, has so much unchecked power and is so revered and the narratives are so triggering because we give it something, in my opinion, it didn't earn, but it just demanded and, and really is part of the trauma is how much you're not supposed to be talking about it. And I've mentioned this several times, how harmful this is to me personally to feel like, okay, well, you're 29 years old, you left the church, but if you could just leave it alone, that'd be great. And what is that saying to people? It is saying, it's a continuation of the trauma. Stay small for love. Fit in this box for love. Do this for love. Behave this way for love. And it is not right. And a and a, a, a trope that is very common within Mormonism that I am guessing is in others 
you can leave the church, but you can't leave it alone. Um, no, it will never leave us alone. I was born into it. I do not get to just leave it and say goodbye when my whole family is a member and there are events like temple marriages and baptisms that I cannot separate myself from. I'm also angry at the tithing. I'm angry at the things that I discuss in this interview. So um, I don't like seeing it continue to abuse more people. I am angry when I know the last tithing check I wrote out for is $7,000 and the church just comes out with just one fund alone. They have hoarded $130 billion. So, you know, someone needs to speak truth to power to that, frankly, because if believers are unable to hold their religion accountable, who will? You know, these are all the kinds of questions and difficult, challenging topics and more that we're going to explore within this episode. And I hope that wherever you land on the spectrum, this is of interest and that you will learn something about religion, religious trauma, yourself, and many other things that these topics can be applied to, you know, in life in general, because I think we're tapping into some really universal themes while talking about this very specific topic. In any case, I loved this interview so much with Laura. She is so fun and funny. We actually have a lot of laughs. <laughs> so I hope you laugh along with us. If you would, and this is why this is also so important to me. I usually say it at the end. Maybe you might not make it to the end, especially if the interview just ends, you don't listen to the outro. But I always thank you for listening. And I always thank you for leaving a review and a rating and a sub subscription and passing it on with a friend. And let me tell you why. When you have chosen a very triggering set of topics, you have basically just stuck your needle and tapped it right into the vein, you know, of something that people really care about. And that's polarizing. And this podcast does not necessarily deserve five stars, but it is on its way to being a five star podcast and where we could be in two years for me is so exciting. And yet reviews that are left today, if they were reflective of where this podcast is actually at, they'll, they'll go forward in the years to come when I hope it'll be a five star podcast. That said, being an advocate here, TikTok, anywhere else, leaving comments, Instagram, um, you're setting yourself up, especially as a woman for misogynistic or other trolls who go, I don't like you. I don't like what you're saying. Where can I hurt you? And the two one-star uh, ratings that I do have were actually born of that. I was on a, a group for Podcast Movement, which is a group of over 30,000 members. And someone came on and said that they got a one-star review there first because they're uh, it was a trio of three men that the episode that they had released was misogynistic. And they basically came to Podcast Movement's group to get some validation that it wasn't. And there was some people going, well, was it? And giving pushback. And I was very outspoken on that thread about the episode because it was toxically and disgustingly misogynistic. And I knew I was going to get um, retribution for this. And I did. I left some comments I got banned or blocked by a few people. It turned so ugly. Um, and then I came back the next morning and there were two one-star ratings on my podcast, which I know was from this. And so this is why I'm so interested and eager to get some help, not only for the show to grow, but so that I don't always have to live in fear that when someone's going to come leave me a one-star, not for my podcast, they didn't even listen to my podcast. So, um, that was that was not very fun to go through, and I hope I never go through it again, but that is why I mentioned that at the end of the show, and it's why 
in, a, in line with this very polarizing topic, I'm going to mention it at the beginning of the show today. In any case, uh, I said I wasn't going to be long, and then now I'm six minutes in. I apologize. Here is Laura. Enjoy this interview. It is so beautiful and wonderful, and I, I know you're going to love it just as much as I did. Here she is. Okay, I could not be more excited to be introducing Laura Anderson to the show. Welcome, Laura. Hello. So good to be here. We're just going to have the best, most interesting conversation. I know it. I am such a fan. I love your work. I love your Instagram. Mm, thank yeah, you. Tell us, you're so welcome. Tell us about you, how you arrived to this work, and what you're studying, and, and what your purpose is here in, within this sphere. Yeah, well, I um, arrived to the Instagram world via kind of the platform of Insta Therapist, um, which has kind of been a thing that's taken off in the last probably year or so. Um, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, but I call myself a licensed psychotherapist because most people are like, oh, marriage and family, that means you see couples and kids. And I don't, I actually don't like seeing couples or kids um, <laughs> or families. Um, <laughs> it's not that I'm against those things. I just, I don't like that much energy in my office. Um, so, and it, when I say therapist, you're like, oh, physical therapist, massage therapist. So no, I call myself a psychotherapist, which is just a psychological therapist. Um, and so I specialize in complex trauma, but within complex trauma, I uh, work almost exclusively with domestic violence, sexual assault, and religious trauma, um, mostly because all three of those are part of my own backstory um, and my journey through that. And so I, I see clients currently online exclusively because of everything that we're going through right now. Um, but I recently also started uh, the Religious Trauma Institute with, with another colleague. And our focus is on looking at the trauma and or abuse that is caused from religious systems. We have been developing different vocabulary and hopefully research down the road in terms of helping people understand that religion actually can cause quite a bit of harm and subsequently trauma, which maybe we can, we can get into what the difference is there um, if you want to. Ooh, so, I haven't thought through that, that there's a difference. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. but uh, I couldn't yeah. make the distinction. So definitely. A lot, of, a lot of people correlate if I've been in a harmful or abusive situation, relationship system, that automatically means I'm going to have trauma. And while they're very closely linked, it doesn't automatically one lead to the other. Um, trauma is very subjective. Again, we can get into that later and what that actually looks like in our body. Um, but because of all the research that's coming out, which is right where we need to be, and um, it's it's good for people to understand those differences as well as how that can live inside their body because then it can allow for the healing to happen in a way that feels really meaningful and effective and being able to kind of proceed with life in a way that um, is kind of living in this space of healing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's part of the work I do. I'm also in school to get my PhD. I'm currently writing my dissertation full time. Um, and my research is on the experience of living in a healing body after sexual trauma. And that also includes sexual trauma from religious messaging. When we talk about like abstinence culture, virginity culture, purity culture, um, those messages that can really live inside your body just just like other sexual trauma can. So it's been this really interesting road. Um, I'm hoping to be done by the end of this calendar year. And 
then move on to other things. Who knows what those are? <laughs> oh my God. I love yeah. it so much. This is just life-changing for people. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned to you privately, um, so like what's ex- we're experiencing in our relationships becomes very illuminating through mm-hmm. someone else's story. But mm-hmm. I think religious trauma, we're so brainwashed and conditioned to adore religion, to give it reverence that it never earned and doesn't deserve, in my opinion. And so I think religious trauma is a little bit more obscured. You hear these phrases like Catholic guilt Mm -hmm. or just different things, and they're almost so trite that we can't get to the heart of the matter. Yeah, expected that we live with that guilt. That's part of the fun. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, you hear Catholic guilt, and you're like, and yeah, I know what that is. But you don't actually move past that to go like, no. How does that actually live inside me? Like, is there an embodied impact that living with that much guilt or that much shame actually has? And and how do I work that through my body so that? Catholic guilt actually becomes part of my past rather than my living present and into yeah. my future. Yeah. And so, Catholic, right. you don't get all the guilt. Like we Mormons <laughs> yeah. have our share too. <laughs> Mormon guilt, hashtag start it. Yeah. <laughs> and what's your religious background personally with that? Yeah. So I came from what's called the Evangelical Free Church of America. It's really not that different from LDS doctrines. Like I've got two very good friends that came from the Mormon church and we will kind of compare notes and we're like, holy cow, we grew up in literally the same environment. Um, And interestingly, and I'll get into my my religious background, a couple of friends of mine and I, when we were leaving the church, we actually watched the show Big Love, um, which is, you know, all about fundamentalist, you know, and we were just, we would sit there shocked going, oh my God, this is what we lived in. Like we didn't have all the wives, but like all the teachings and the dress codes and the rules and like all of these things. And we were like, we were always taught that that's a cult. And so then when you start to see, oh no, that's what I grew up with too. You're like, well then, did I grow up in a cult or like, yep. what does it actually mean? So uh, the way I describe the Evangelical Free Church of America is it is the hellfire and brimstone of Southern Baptist combined with the rigidity of Church of Christ combined with the stoicism of Lutheranism and then reformed theology, which is um, Calvinism. Uh, so I don't know if those outside the evangelical church know what Calvinism is, but it's this, you know, there's certain people that are selected to be saved. Um, you know, everybody else isn't, but it's, I don't know. It's, I can't even describe it. We just want to look it up on our own time. I'm interested. I'm interested. The acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. It goes through these five stages of this is what Calvinism is, kind of from birth to death. And it's this whole idea of how you live your life. And it's very judgmental and shaming. um, But you're supposed to be excited about it because at the end of all of this, you're saved. You get to go to heaven and everything's going to be great. So that's my background. Um, I I went to a couple Christian. Christian colleges and universities that um, really promoted that stuff too. But interestingly, it was in the Christian university that I went to for my master's degree, which is Liberty University out in Virginia, um, which has a lot of heat on it right now for their policies, uh, both around, you know, social justice issues as well as COVID. Um, It was actually there that I really started to step back and and start questioning my beliefs on a pretty like regular basis basis. So at like bachelor age, like 22, 23, 21. That was my master's degree. So I, gosh, I think I was probably 
I think when I be- went back to school, I was like 25, 26, something okay. like that. Um, so I had, I had actually worked in the church that I was a part of. And so was very heavily indoctrinated and I knew there was some things that weren't right. But of course, in these high demand religions, there isn't a lot of room for questioning or there's no room for questioning. You have to shut your body off. So those gut feelings that you get that, oh, something's not right here. You have to teach yourself to silence that. You have to teach yourself that your voice doesn't matter. You can't trust yourself. There is no intuition. And so even though I had these moments kind of really throughout my life, it wasn't until literally the first day of my master's degree program. And one of the professors said something and I was like, yeah, that's not how we were taught. And but I think you're right. You know, I, I think it's not so black and white. And that just kind of really like opened up this door to be able to continue to ask questions and those sorts of things. And I I knew that I wouldn't really be able to leave everything until I left the community I grew up in. And so it wasn't until I moved to Nashville, which was about 10 years ago, that I was like, okay, I'm, I'm really going for this. Like I'm asking the questions and making the changes. I'm challenging my beliefs and living differently. So it's been this progressive process, um, yeah, for, gosh, a lot of years. <laughs> wow. I yeah. identify with a lot of the, like, I'm seeing the crossover from your experience and the demands and the expectations. And for anyone who's like an apologist or believer who's listening to this, I just, and going, that's not true. <laughs> I just want to remind us that religions like these, these high demand religions, have a lot of duplicitous nature within them so that there's get um, every kind of get out of jail free card, every kind of move the goalpost mm-hmm. so that there's a lot of speaking in double speak. There's a lot of dog whistle language. There's a lot of language that's said with winks. So that's sort of by design that you're having if you are a cognitive dissonance experience of like, wait, I subconsciously sub on some level of consciousness, like identify with what they're saying, but I also want to vilify what they're saying. Like that's not yeah. to on purpose. Yeah. And I think it's important. Well, I don't identify myself as religious at all. I am not anti-religion. I am anti-harm, anti-abuse, anti-toxic messaging. So if there's people that can find religious practices or spiritual practices that don't promote those types of messages, I celebrate that with you um, because I think that that's great if you can figure out a way to make that meaningful in your life. I might not share that, but that's okay. Um, I agree. Glennon mentioned one. I can't remember. It was, I think, not not in uh, her last book, but in the one before that Mm -hmm. a reader had suggested she try this church that was a couple of miles down the road. And she was like, how did I not know about this church? But it had people of color within the leadership, LGBTQ plus within the leadership. And that was in the moment where I, it signaled to me to do a whole podcast, show me who's, show me your values by who's in your leadership. Absolutely. And that kind of speaks to the difference between a religion that is there to um, be a predator mm-hmm. and a religion that is there to offer uh, a facilitation of this source of mystery that would never be held apart from you, that would never be charged money for, but they're there to actually facilitate a group, you know, healing and awakening and and everything that God is supposed to be. But I am anti any religion that has made itself um, 
a power structure that is meddling with people's real lives. It is in the middle of people's real Mm -hmm. lives, like the Mormon church is to mine. Mm -hmm. And of course my family would never see it that way. I'm the problem. (laughs) It's not that this Mm -hmm. religion has come and inserted itself in the middle of all of our lives. It's Mm -hmm. that the dissenters and the disbelievers. Mm-hmm. So anytime that it's sort of, you know, you're, you you know how to phrase it in the academic way. <laughs> I can phrase it in the story anecdotal, Which but it's usually better anyways. <laughs> <laughs> They're great together. I, mm-hmm. I say in any case. So I, I think there's so many really good examples that have touched my life of great germ journalism. Um, Elna mm-hmm. Baker has a couple really good ones. She's uh, a very prominent ex-Mormon who's mm-hmm. a producer and journalist on This American Life. She has a really stunning, uh, maybe 10 or 15 minute um, segment, maybe a year or two ago. It came out about uh, bishop interviews, which are part of mm-hmm. the Mormon church, probably part of purity culture of a lot of evangelical or Christian church, probably Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know. Jehovah's Witnesses and, and Mormons seem to, like ex-Mormons and ex-JWs seem to really understand each other. Yeah. I look at some ex-JW stuff. Yeah. Uh, because I always see JWs and ex-Mormon stuff. But in any case, it was about these sort of, let's, uh, as in to say, let's get into some of the actual abuses mm-hmm. that you see. Mm-hmm. on a story or anecdotal level mm-hmm. um, individually within religions. And, and this one with Elna Baker is something that I experienced personally, which was to go behind closed doors with a, a man who was my ecclesiastical leader in Mormonism. It's called Bishop. Mm-hmm. And because it's lay clergy, which means that it's not any clergy that's paid or trained professionally. And I grew up in a place which was so tightly concentrated with Mormons that the congregations were a couple of streets. So this person is just like my friend's dad, who has no training, who has no education, no expertise, is basically just, yeah, my friend's dad. I go behind closed doors. The first time I think at 13, I might have been 14, though, to be asked very sexual questions and personal questions about my life, thoughts, sexuality, body, was I touching myself, different things. So this is also why I think this is so important to discuss as part of the through lines of healing your childhood trauma. I think I think about my parents allowing that to happen. And I'm not trying to have like an indictment on my parents, mm-hmm. but there are these systems that come in or organizations that are informing your parents' parenting. And that's why this is in, mm-hmm. really important to discuss. Yeah. But in any case, I, uh, Elna describes this anecdotally with herself as well as her siblings and different people that she knows. And um, I'll try to link that in the show notes for more in-depth on that. But I know personally that that happened. It personally happened yeah. to me through my teen years. And I think it's one of these things that in your adult life, you're like waking up to your sexuality going, wait, what is in there? What yeah. the hell yeah. all is in there? So yeah. I think I want to hear more from you on these kind of things that yeah. what you see with your clients, your own personal experience, of what the trauma actually is that people can wrap their brains around it. Yeah. You know, you make a good point when you talk about your parents and the, there's a lot of language right now going on around social media, this phrase intent versus impact. And so mm-hmm. I think that's that applies to a situation like this here too. I think most of us can say, 
oh, my parents did the best that they could. They didn't intentionally harm me. They sent me to the elder or the deacon or the bishop or the whoever, because that's just what they did. They didn't know to question that. Their intent was good. And that might be true. Uh, and we don't actually have to discard that. But the impact of what that did, to that feels violating, that feels exposing, that can feel like sexual assault, sexual abuse, how our body interprets that is very different than the intent. And so while we can make space to say, yeah, sure, you tried, um, we also can honor our own experience to say, you tried and this is how it impacted me. Um, and so I think that's really important, especially you know when we're talking about religion, because it's typically been looked at this like pro-social factor. So here's this really good thing that can be supportive and helpful. And Maybe there are ways for it to be that, um, but because it's tended to be culturally a pro-social factor, there's never really been a lot of research around, well, what if it isn't? What is the damage that can be done by some of these indoctrinated, and I would even say brainwashing messages? Um, mm -hmm. Those don't just stay in your mind when you leave the faith and go like, oh, I don't want to believe that anymore. It's not as simple as just saying, okay, I believe this. It's going, gosh, when I go to do this, that was contrary to what I was told was right or good or non-sinful, my body has a physiological response to that. And mm -hmm. that feels very confusing to me. Yeah. So uh, I think it's important to understand how those religious messages can be in, ingrained or embodied inside of us and how simply leaving or cognitively shifting does not necessarily take that away if and when we would leave a religion or shift the way that we believe or anything like that. Um, yeah. yeah. Can I tether this to something? And sure. this is where I, I like to imagine what someone hears this. I imagine a couple of camps, one who've been through it, totally understand it, preaching to the choir, people who've never heard it, who are horrified, people who've never heard it, who are minimizing it, who are like, that's not that big of a deal. You went in and you talked to an ecclesiastical leader. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let me just tether this to the broader picture. There were no women who were instead of me within this church, all male, mm -hmm. all patriarchal. Mm -hmm. There were no women to look to as leaders. You know, so there was so much more beyond the sexual messaging that was like beginning to make a cocktail. And so this was just the ice. Okay. We got a lot more good stuff coming. We got the vodka, we got the spritzer, we got the lime, you know, we got the bitters. Yeah. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's more, you know, it's not like it's, you could, you can bring up a, a single incident as an allegory or a single part of it, but there's so much more beyond, you know, what you can talk about in that single experience that is informing and becoming in your body, informing you, messages about who you are and that you're operating in the world as such. Yeah. And I think, you know, so a couple of thoughts along those lines is talking about like, what is trauma? Like, what does that actually mean in our bodies? Um, and then kind of comparing that to how that works with religious messaging. But the way I describe trauma very succinctly is that trauma is not an event that happens to us. It is the way that our body or nervous system experiences and responds to the things that happen to us. So that makes a lot of room for subjectivity and uh, in trauma of going like, what is traumatic for you may or may not be for me and, uh, and vice versa. And so 
we go, if my body hears this message maybe once or maybe over and over and over, and my nervous system determines that feels really dangerous, and I don't have somebody safe to process that with, to help me make sense of it, to find actual physical safety, to care for me, to nurture me as a child, then I start to embody that. And anytime that message comes up, I have a, a maybe a visceral somatic response. Or anytime I go against that message, I have a visceral physical response. Not because I'm consciously trying to do that, but because that message has been hardwired in such a way that says, if you do this, that means this, and that's dangerous. And so we're going to try to do whatever we can to kind of mitigate that. So you think about even uh, I say simple, not really like a doctrine of like hell or eternal damnation, or, you know, if you don't follow these religious teachings, you go to this place after you die. And as a kid, if your parents are telling you this and they are your source of safety and stabilization and security, you have no choice but to believe that, especially because you're probably not just hearing that message once. You're probably hearing it over and over. And then you go to church and you hear that message from the pastors or the leaders or the bishops and then the people who teach your little breakout groups and Sunday school classes and small groups and community groups. You hear these messages and it becomes ingrained over and over and you start to go as a kid subconsciously, well, my parents said it, my pastor said it, my group leader said it. That must be true. And so we start to then, as a kid, our brain is such that we believe things that are told to us. And so we go, that's truth. And that starts to become wired into my brain, neurologically wired, so that if something happens that is counter to that message, my body has a physiological response. So then 20, 30 years later, I decide that's not for me. I don't believe that stuff. Hell isn't real. I go and I do this thing that used to be considered a sin, let's say sex outside of marriage, because that's always one that they love to harp on. And all of a sudden, you have this fear that takes over your body that's like, oh, shit, I've done something eternally damaging. My life is in danger like forever. And it's weird because you're like, well, I don't believe that anymore, but my body does because my body's been taught for years or decades that this is what happens if you do these things. The consequence is literally eternal damnation. That feels really dangerous. Um, Is that kind of making sense of like how it reverberates all through bringing up some very, very tangible examples that I know are going to resonate. There's more. I did a TikTok yesterday about, uh, I'm definitely going to get disowned for this because I swore (laughs) I would never betray the secrets of the temple. But in the temple, have you heard this from any of your clients? There's a part where you bow your head in obedience to your husband and you also acknowledge that you have no direct line to God. Mm -hmm. Your husband has a direct line to God and you have aligned your husband. And I mean, this is like damaging on so many levels. If you happen to identify outside of a heterosexual partnership, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is damaging. You know, the thought that I don't have a direct link to God is damaging. Mm-hmm. And, you know, religion is, I think, a, a codependency factory. Mm-hmm. So to me, the, if I had to just armchair diagnose, it was codependency, narcissistic relationship. How mm-hmm. toxic do you think that is to then not be codependently attached to a narcissist who's being told that you just bowed obedience to them? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. just at the levels with which the potential for all of this trauma to 
not only be stored in your own body, but then be reenacted out in situations in the real world with my husband at the time, with my ex-husband now, that then just create more chaos and more addiction to these nervous system responses that you're used to having play out in within your system. Have you heard things like that from Mormons or other religions about stuff like that? Yeah. You know, I think what's interesting is that, you know, you said Mormons and JWs oftentimes are like, yeah, we're the same. And and that's true. When we start to look at these like high demand religions, there is so much similarity. And even though there might be these like specific nuances, like you had to bow your head and do this, but I had to, you know, submit to my pastor until this, you know, like it's this idea of like, well, we're still the same. <laughs> like it's still it's just because the intent is the same. Exactly. They're driving the same outcome. They've just found their own yeah. levers. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with Eckhart Tolle, but in his book, um, A New Earth, he talks about kind of this origin of religion. And one of the things he talks about is that oftentimes the different denominations and religions evolved from places of fear and control of wanting to be the best and wanting to do it the right way. And the way that they did that is by adding more rules and regulations and kind of like tightening this box of what it means to have access to God. And so you do these things and then you're in the right religion or the right group. And that gives you this eternal life. Because if you look at all these major world religions, even though there's different beliefs, it's like, you know, we all have kind of some sort of, we were born this way, we needed somebody or something to save us, and we're going to a certain place after we die. And some of the nuances in between there of what that tangibly looks like or what's tangibly required is different. But a lot of the doctrines are the same. The power and control dynamic underneath it is the same. It just Mm -hmm. kind of uh, on the surface looks a little bit different. So to answer your question, yeah, I have. I've had a lot of different clients with a lot of different stories like that that have just those little nuances. But it's like, yeah, I might not be able to identify with that specific thing, but I, I absolutely do understand what you are going through, and I understand the way that that can impact your body um, and how you can live with that over a, a period of years and decades, or even the rest of your life. And that's yeah. where the damage comes. Um, yeah. My mom, this story kind of blows my mind. This is the first time I've told it publicly. I I imagine like somebody once said everybody should try stand up comedy <laughs> once in their life, and I agree. And I I've been working my stand up comedy routine. My mom came from quite my my grandma was undiagnosed bipolar, mm-hmm. and I look at this now, and I want to hear what you told me um, before as we were chatting before we press record about the lead up of some of the way religion shifted at the parents of our ages. Um, But my grandma had undiagnosed bipolar until she was almost dead at her early seventies. And she was a convert to the Mormon church. And I think through this, like, Oh my God, you're actually a convert of the church in the fifties when Mm -hmm. it still did not allow black people, Mm -hmm. the priesthood. Like if you could just think through this, like noodle through this, this just makes so much sense that this mentally ill woman finds this religion and we're all just raised in it now. And everybody's Mormon. I'm one of the only ones who's out. It's nuts. But my mom Uh, part of like what's part and parcel with all of this. And it's very subservience. You're not only like sexually subservient, but you're subservient to the man 
like basically putting their whole life on. Like that is your life. You have no life outside of that. And that's yeah. done by design. And the women just sit there with their internalized misogyny. Thank you so much, you know, for less than nothing. But uh, my mom told me, I was like, this is the year before I left the church when I was 29. I, I was living in Australia at the time and I came home for summer and we were driving through her town. She lived in, in California at the time. And she turned to me in the car and she went, you know what, Nat? got some advice for you, boo-boo. My like most fabulous, like life-changing advice, like this is going to change your whole life. Like there was one thing I could do, go back and do and change. And I'm like, what is it, mom? She's like, I would take more naps as in to sexually please my father. (laughs) (laughs) She needed to be more rested. I know it's so cute. And actually like, there's one other story that I haven't told, um, Publicly, I don't know that I'll tell it today, but we'll, we'll leave it as a little nugget of just like how funny mm-hmm. people are when like mm-hmm. it, it's so so serious and so real to them. And I understand that because it was to me, but when it isn't to you and you see that there's a whole other way to live and self-advocate <laughs> and be an, an individual. Anyway, so you were saying before that at this age of the age of our parents that that there was a shift in the culture that is informing this story, I think, to me. It, I saw a through line in any case. Yeah. Well, yeah. What we're talking about is this idea of like kind of the state of where our country is at right now. Like, why are the issues the issues? And, you know, we've got Black Lives Matter going on. And wasn't that supposed to be eradicated in the civil rights era? And, you know, everybody's equal. And why is this such a big deal? And those sorts of things. And when we start to peel back, you know, kind of the evangelical right wing. And I I know evangelical is a word that maybe not everybody identifies with, but there's people from many different high demand religious groups that fit into that category. So we're talking JW, Mormons, um, evangelical free church, Southern Baptist, you know, all of these. Yeah. All of these people. I mean, I don't know where they stand politically, but the ideals and kind of how the underlying system works is also very similar. And I do know that there's been many like big names in Scientology that have been uh, big supporters of our current president. So Mm -hmm. draw your own conclusions, however you want to. Um, Yeah. But what happened in kind of the the mid to late 70s is there was this starting to be this shift that was happening with this group of people that were wanting to quote unquote, take back the nation for God. They felt like with the introduction of, you know, women's rights and, you know, rights for people of color and all these sorts of things like this is not, this is not, you know, where God's nation is supposed to go. And we're, we are founded on these Christian principles and values, which is completely a myth anyways. And that's a totally different conversation for a different day. And there's other people more qualified than myself that can speak to that. But they they went through this process and what they what was happening as a result of the civil rights movement is the government told um, colleges, specifically Christian or religious colleges, and mostly here in the South, which is where I live, um, that they were no longer going to fund schools that promoted segregation. So you had to desegregate the schools and, and you wouldn't... Um, you wouldn't receive funding otherwise. And what was happening here is that there was these little tiny private schools that were like popping up and applying for, you know, financial aids and those sorts of things. And they were created so that they could be segregated. And so finally the government said, nope, like we're putting a kibosh to that. And what was happening then is this group of religious people 
were losing ground. They were going, hey, um, this like our our values, our beliefs aren't being pushed forward in the way that we want to. And they knew it was a losing battle with racism. So they decided let's let's choose another issue that can unite this party and and we can move forward. And the issue they chose was abortion. And they decided that this is going to be our rally cry. They knew that they could get the Catholic Church on board with it because it had always been an issue of the Catholic Church. But interestingly, Protestant churches up until this point really didn't care. They kind of interpreted the theology as that life begins at birth, not life begins at conception. And so they had these leaders Uh, Paul Wyrick was the guy who kind of like put this on the map. And they had all these other big name leaders that started to shift from instead of separation of church and state, that the church should have a say in the state, essentially. Um, And so what we've seen progressively over time happen is that they've been gaining momentum and they have this whole kind of list of like, we want to be able to take over media and politics and education, and it's going to look like this, and that's going to be this nation back for God. And And our current president, you know, fits kind of in that they, he is widely supported by the evangelical uh, Protestant church, uh, which is, I think, what is it? 80% of white evangelicals voted for Trump in the 2016 election, which speaks a lot when you look at what they stand for, um, anti-women's rights, anti-LGBTQ, anti-people of color, all of these sorts of things. Not everybody, um, but that there is some real foundations in there. And so, um, We've seen a lot of pushback, you know, from religious communities in the last four years because they're looking at these policy shifts or um, or whatnot as direct threats to their belief system and direct threats to their religious freedom without realizing that they're taking rights and freedoms away from many other people simply because they do not hold the same beliefs. Yes. Or that all of that was like suffused into the religion retroactively. <laughs> that too. Yeah. If you could get people galvanized on their fears, on their fears of death, on their traumas. I mean, we're all just as this series that I'm doing now highlights like intergenerational trauma, childhood trauma, like it happens, you perpetuate it. If you can find a way to capitalize on something that's so pervasive and ubiquitous and profit off of it, that is exactly why I'm so angry. Because you're then weaponizing all of that to infringe on other people's rights. I'm not here trying to desecrate something that's so sacred, Mm -hmm. but I don't really have a lot of respect for things that are called sacred when they're just really secret. So sure. Yeah. And and they call them sacred based off of preference too. So you can even go back to holy texts and you go, this is nowhere in that. Um, But when we go back to that trauma piece or that abuse or that brainwashing piece, So I grew up in a home that was incredibly pro-life. Like if that is the issue, my mom votes for the pro-life candidate. That is it. You know, it doesn't matter what else happens. And so I grew up with this huge, like, this is what abortion is. This is what it literally looks like. This is, you know, all of these sorts of things that then as an adult at like 25 to 30 years old, I'm suddenly discovering that's actually not true. So now I'm having to revisit all of these topics, science, physiology, psychology, history, you know, astronomy, all of these things that were taught under this particular umbrella of this is this is what is true. And we step out of that and we go, oh, 
no, <laughs> there's this other world that's that's way bigger and I'm starting to see things differently that can cause a lot of internal conflict, causes a lot of external conflict. There's so many families that are broken apart because one person steps out and they go, this is not just a difference of beliefs. It's that you're now rejecting me, who I am as a person. And mm. that feels overwhelming for both sides. Um, yeah. I like it. I mean, I, I'm, I've been sitting on this for like 10 years. I had, so, oh, it's funny that abortion was one of the, I left the church in it in, in uh, after a conversation in three hours, I woke up Mormon, had a conversation with a stranger for three hours, was no longer Mormon, took off my garments, told my husband that night. But that was one of the first things that I thought, I remember thinking that I got off the phone. I, I emailed a friend and said, this just happened. Don't let me undo it. I know mm. it'll be scary. I know I'll want to pretend this never happened. Don't let me do it. Somebody needs to know I need a lifeline. And then I thought, oh, that's shit. not what yeah. I think about abortion at all. That's literally what I thought. Yeah. Like my authentic self, that's not what I think. And then shortly after that came, I, I remember mentioning six months later to a family member about the curse of Cain. Mm -hmm. And they, I've still mentioned this. Like, do you have any idea the racism in yeah. religion? They look at me like I'm made out of ham. They do like, like, huh? Like brain. Well, there's a curse like ham too. You know that? <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I didn't know you were a comedian, Laura. <laughs> we're making, taking religion down funny. <laughs> we are your clowns for religion. Um, <laughs> that is so funny. No, I just, I just, I, it, this is why I love Black Lives Matter and what's happening so much right now, because I've been waiting for this for 10 years. Like, are we ready to talk about the curse of Cain yet? Are we ready to talk about it? Nope. Because I keep bringing it up now more than I have in years. And I'm, they're still looking at me like I'm made out of the curse of him. But um, <laughs> yeah. it's, there was a there was some uh, an open thread there of something. Oh, um, th uh, I I you truly say, yeah, you just left like you you woke up and you were no longer yeah. Mormon. That's where you kind of <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I, <laughs> I know no. I was I was going somewhere, abruptly left and 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 found. I I had the same experience you did. Suffice it to say, there was another point there. But I truly I do you. I I find it a little nefarious, you know, and, and these are delicate things. These are people's sacred, holy beliefs. But as I'm looking through through lines, I have a couple of opinions. One, if it were illegal to raise children in religion, we would eradicate religion in one generation and the world would be better for it. You don't have to agree or disagree with them. That's my opinion. I just don't, I don't, I don't believe people would choose these beliefs if they weren't familiar. I really don't. Yeah. And well, I think what's important to realize about religion, in and it doesn't even matter which one you're in, is oftentimes you are taught what to think versus how to think. Critical thinking, asking questions, being curious is not a part of a religious group. There is a prescribed set of rules or standards or regulations or however it is that you abide by, which is actually what creates safety within religion and keeps people in it. Because we, when we don't know something, we get scared and we tend to want to grab onto like, tell me what to do. Um, we're not a, a humans don't love to like have to sit in the discomfort of like not knowing what to do or feeling conflicting emotions. And so we have these religions that come along and they're like, oh, easy, you know, here, just do these things, say these things, pray these things, live this way. 
you're good. And mm-hmm. that feels comforting to an individual. It feels nice to not have to think or to feel, it feels sometimes, you know, we, we know it's controlling, but it kind of feels nice for somebody to say, no, you can't do that. You know, I might not like it, but it, it feels safe to, cause it's like boundaries. I know kind of how far out I can go and, and then it's too far. And so we, in those spaces, we are not taught how to think. We are only taught what to think. And as I went on this little rant, I'm like, I don't remember what the actual question was. <laughs> no, I, I agree. And I mean, I'm just going to say a couple of controversial things. I also think exactly tapping into what you're saying as I marry it with like a healing, if you're bred into by design, an absence of critical thinking, and that was done to you, then that's again, like the codependency breeds, uh, breeding, my parents, my my culture, asking me to abandon and betray myself, asking me to have no intuition, asking me to put the organization's needs above my own, that will have major consequences with me individually, and then collectively. And what I also believe, you know, the Mormon church just came out, and it was found that they have $130 billion they've stockpiled, mm-hmm. which is just insane. And again, if I actually believe again in what you're tying into, and this is my own theory, but I bet it would be easily corroborated that in that power grab that was, you know, leading up through this, the civil rights movement and them seeing, it almost feels like religion and the U.S. government are one in the same in that the religion is the factory for a kind of people that will never have any skills to hold anyone accountable. And if you did, the Mormon church wouldn't have that money because it has that money and yet still demands 10% of people in poverty. It still demands that its missionaries pay their own way, which is bonkers to me. It was amortized when I left the church 10 years ago, which the last tithing check that I wrote out to, and I so smugly, I would be traveling, I would be at the airport, someone going, ma'am, would you like to donate? And I would so smugly go, I'd give 10% of my income already to some, to a, you know, charitable organization. Well, I know that the last uh, tithing check that I wrote out was for $7,000. That wasn't even for the full year. And when I left like six months later, someone had amortized what the Mormon church actually pays out in humanitarian aid. And it came to $4 mm-hmm. per person wow. per year, yeah. which is insane. So you have this organization that just sells you an afterlife and sells you uh, a, a family in eternity that no God I would ever believe in would ever withhold that from you personally. But um, what kind of people does that lead for the U.S. government to also never hold them accountable at all, which is why we're owned by corporate America. Again, my personal theory that like this is all intentional and done on purpose by the powers that be. And it's very patriarchal. Again, the there's more CEOs named David than there are women CEOs. So the system is very self-perpetuating by the very seeds of Racism, misogyny, dissent, shame, weaponizing shame, all of the, and zero critical thinking skills, which is why I'm, who would be for that? Who mm. would be going, yeah, let's perpetuate that for our children. Yeah. Yeah. I think you hit on something really important there is that concept of patriarchy. And I think there was a thought in my mind prior to leaving leaving religion was that this is a religious concept. And in fact, it's not. It is 
America was not a Christian nation. It was a patriarchal nation. And the whole concept of patriarchy is that there is one prototype of a person. In in our case, it is the, the white cisgendered, preferably heterosexual male um, who is at the top. And the way patriarchy works is it's a dynamic of power and control, which is another word for or a phrase for abuse. And they go, I... I am the one who determines the rules, how the money is spent, how the lives are lived. And I also determine how the pecking order goes. And so that is where we get all of these other systems like capitalism, ableism, racism, misogyny, all of these sorts of things, because we have one person at the top that's dictating, not just one person, but one type of person at the top dictating, you know, um, this is what happens. And what's interesting as we're going through all of this national unrest with Black Lives Matters, as we should be, because it is long overdue, we're, we're naturally starting to see like, oh, white people have a lot of privilege, not because they did anything special. They just were born with that. Again, not our fault, but we also then have to look at like because I did this, I got to live in a certain amount of ignorance and privilege that I now have to address. And so in some ways we can see that part really clearly of like the privilege that we have as, as somebody in a white body, but it's much harder to go actually underneath that is another system. And it's a system that put one type of person at the top that's determined all of these other things and that's the cisgender heterosexual white man. Um, and if you want to disagree, why don't you go ahead and pull out a picture of who's in the leadership of the church that you belong to or came from and take a good, hard stare at it right now. Pause this recording right now and go get it and stare at it. And you want to come tell us that we're wrong. I would love to hear it. Yeah. Absolutely. And in fact, I hope you do because I hope your church isn't like that. Sure. I just know too many are. I remembered what I was going to say. Do you, what you it. No, well, yeah, no. I was just going to say like, that's, I think that's just an important piece that we have to look at. And so when we look at dismantling things like racism and white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy, and how does the church like, you know, reallocate $130 billion. Like clearly they have that much because money speaks. Money is power. I can pay people in Washington to do my bidding, right? And so part of the way that we have to dismantle this in our bodies and collectively is by looking at the systems that this is built upon. Because if we don't look for that systemic change, we're just, we, we are kind of we're always just going to be perpetuating the same systems, just maybe with a different branding. Yeah. And the video I was watching that was discussing this on um, leading up to this, don't quote me that this is exactly, but it was like, if you, most people don't understand how much even a billion is. Oh yeah. I have no idea. A <laughs> million is just 1 billion. So then you have 140. And she said something like, if you worked for $10,000 an hour, spending nothing since the time of Christ, you still wouldn't even be halfway to making this money that the church has amassed. And yet they're taking 10% and then just praising that widow's might. Mm-hmm. Oh, the widow's might, you know, like they're glorifying robbing you. They're mm-hmm. glorifying it. Yeah. Anyway, I was going to say, and it almost has more relevance now than probably when I was going to mention it as I leave the church in an hour and I'm waking up to these things. I realized what I was up against to ever own my own story mm-hmm. and be able to 
say this because a smear campaign about me and who I actually am to say this was put into the works a hundred years before I was born with just Mormonism alone, let let alone Christianity. So even to speak about this feels like I'm speaking about the church and not my own life and not my own experiences that anyone, if this were any other thing that someone didn't have a stake in, they'd go, God damn right, you're angry. But if it touches personally on that, that identity that the church has interwoven in someone, that's when they go, oh, they're bristled, they're rough, they're, ooh, and then they're hurling. You're bad. You're a bitch. You're a, a look at you with your patriarchy speak, feminazi, and, and all of these things, because the whole system is also perpetuated off the fact that dissenters of that system will be held to a far higher standard mm-hmm. for out against it truthfully using their own story than the atrocities right before our eyes that they themselves are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty fucked up. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know if I can say that on here, but it is. (laughs) Um, So that's that's one thing that people, I mean, especially if they're triggered when they're listening to this, Mm -hmm. I really hope people bring a sense of inquiry and curiousness, not conclusion, Mm -hmm. not conclusiveness. I mean, I understand that I'm passionate about this and I understand that I'm angry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm, I've finally allowed myself Mm -hmm. to be angry for myself and others who are basically born into this, um, as cogs in a machine, Mm -hmm. And to take their humanity out from them so that they can perpetuate that machine. Yeah. Who wouldn't be angry about that? Who, if you're not angry about that. <laughs> I think anger is such a valid part of the healing process and oftentimes dismissed in religious um, uh, communities and teachings is that, you know, anger is bad. Anger is sinful. You don't go to bed angry. You know, all of these sorts of things. Tension uh, is of the devil. Con- yeah. Tension is of the devil. Absolutely. But anger is really kind of this natural emotion that we would feel when we start seeing things for how they truly are. So it, it, you know, in the grief process, we talk about denial and anger, all these steps or whatever, and they, they, that's part of the healing process too. So the definition of denial that I use is it's a defense mechanism that all of us use to keep us from seeing things for how they truly are. Because if we did see it for how it truly truly was or truly is or truly, yeah, truly was or is, um, it would feel consciously intolerable. And so we kind of keep these blinders on because that's what keeps us safe. And if we open them just a little bit, we see something, we go, I don't know if I'm ready to deal with that. But in those moments of courage uh, that can happen over time, or in your case, in an instant, and a lot of times it is in an instant, we go, holy shit, I'm seeing things for how they truly are. And as I let that sit in me and understand the implications the impact, right? Not intent, the impact that it's had on my life, my relationships, my body, all of these sorts of things. Why wouldn't you be angry? Because you see that you've been duped or you've been lied to, or you've been controlled or you've been abused and harmed, all of these sorts of things. And that anger that comes up in us, like that's the righteous anger to use like a, a religious term, but that's the anger that you go, yeah, but that motivates me to act, whether that is 
um, changing my own situations, that is advocating for other people, that is making um, shifts in my beliefs or, or whatever, healing, whatever that is. Anger is a very, very important emotion. And I think that's why religions hate it so much too, because underlying anger is passion and it's fueling us. And if we have passion and fuel that's not connected to God or to our church or whatever, like that could do damage to the church, not not necessarily yes. to the individual. Because they know that the individual is so powerless against it. This is kind of exactly what I was tapping into, this smear campaign. You don't even own your life. The fact that you want to just, if it were Trump, if it were anything, of course, that's a little divisive, but then people have your back and they're not going to go, wow, mm-hmm. because you're anti-Trump, you, you sure seem, you can leave Trump, but you can't leave him alone. Or like, you know, <laughs> you sure seem fixated on Trump. Like people don't do that. But when it's this, mm-hmm. the religion has set up all of these traps for you to fall into your fa- your intimate family relationships, your relationships with your friends, you looking bitter, you looking nasty, like a nasty woman, <laughs> you, you know, the, all of these ways. And that I'm sure, mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk all day about the childhood trauma and the programming, but then there is all of this added trauma that I have had for another 10 years about it being a thing that I am not asking to be fixated on it. It has inserted itself into my life. Mm-hmm. I never asked for it. I still don't ask for it. Yeah. It's there. And so, yes, you're exactly right. That The anger and the discomfort and the frustration of that mm-hmm. leads me to want to speak out publicly, but that has its own con- consequences too. Yeah. I think the unique piece about this I'm gathering for you, you've been out of the church for quite a while. So have I. And by, I would say like at least 10 years, uh, um, anybody that's been out for like at least 10 years, like eight to 10 years, typically has a very different experience than coming out right now. And really it's because of social media. Um, Mm -hmm. So when I came out of religion, when I really started coming out like 13 to 15 years ago and asking those questions and, and those sorts of things, social media did not exist. I think Facebook might've existed, but that is not a place. I mean, you, you were like, I like this song today. You know, like the prompt for your status was like, what are you doing right now? So you're not like putting these rants up or, you know, whatever. And so when I, when I started asking those questions and then finally moved here to Nashville and, and came to this place of like, I can no longer do this anymore. I, I truly believed I was the only one who knew this like weird secret that like this, this is not what's going on. And I had these two other friends that also left the same church and we would have these secret meetings over margaritas trying to like figure out what the hell had happened to us. And and we we did the work, you know, like we we deconstructed that, and it was very lonely and painful. I was so, I, and, and they are still some of my best friends. Um, I was so grateful for them, but but it was secret, you know. People didn't publicize that they're leaving the Mormon Church because there's so many consequences that go with that. People don't publicize. I don't believe this anymore because you're going to get people that are, you know at the very least praying for you and hoping that you'll come back and, you know, if not disowning yeah, you. You're exactly right. That is how it felt. So yeah. I was on, I would go to postmormon.org mm-hmm. for about a year. I found that helpful and then I quit. But yeah. at one point somebody figured out who I was and they outed me publicly yeah. on the forum. And I remember mm-hmm. just I like feeling destroyed. Yeah. I was just distraught yeah. for what this might mean. That, yeah. And, and you're right. It, mm-hmm. That is something that we went through 10 yeah. years ago that is, What's, what's happened over the last 10 years to open different doors 
is so different. And it was that 10 years because someone 40 years ago didn't have social media at all 20 years ago. So it was in that little sweet spot Mm -hmm. of leaving the church at this time that I think was extra traumatic, not to like discount any. Well, well and, there are things that there aren't apart now. Yeah. I mean, we won't say that it's more or less dramatic. And so it's what I, yeah, stuff. what I think is happening now, there's kind of the, it's, it's bittersweet almost because now that social media is here, the, the positive side is that it opens up so many opportunities to have access to resources, whether that is therapists and coaches or podcasts or books or websites or blogs or networking groups or, you know, I'm a part of several um, ex-evangelical or ex-religious Facebook groups. It's the only reason I'm on Facebook is to be a part of those groups, right? So it's this wonderful thing. And at the very least, you know, I'm not alone. There are other people that are going through this. And that is a huge part in healing is, is having safe connection and knowing that I am not isolated in my experience. The downside to that, I think, especially for those of us who have gone through this process and we're like, yeah, I'm not like (laughs) I've been there, done that, like I'm trying to move on with my life is that we're now inundated with all of these people that are asking questions that we've answered years ago. And we want to be a part of that in a helping nature and those sorts of things, because we're giving what we never had. And that's wonderful, but it's also exhausting Mm -hmm. because it's like, you are, you know, the epitome of cancel culture because somebody doesn't believe the same thing as you. When are you going to figure out that's actually fundamentalism? Because I'm exhausted by by your rants on Twitter or, you know, whatever it is. And so there's kind of that, that double-edged sword. And so I love the community and the way that people can get out of religious communities. Now that feels so much safer. But then I think for those of us who have already gone that path, it's like, okay, you know what, let's lock you in a closet for two years and then, you know, after you've had time to process, come on out and we'll <laughs> re-engage with life here. Um, that's it really is that way. No, it really, it was clear. I remember like I, I had had a cooking blog. I was cooking. I was doing, mm-hmm. I, I took a month. I, I would wake up. I was just on the floor yeah. and I was in a trance and I hadn't picked my daughter up from school. I mean, all, I was utterly changed as a person for about two years. And I'm still, there's so many, mm-hmm. not only consequences of, of the things that are like the roadblocks that are uniquely placed to leave. But there's also, if you're committed to your healing, like you've got to undo all of this trauma. And in the meantime, like, you know, yeah. Yeah. And many women, I know this is a common one. I was kind of surprised we didn't get more questions. If, if you're raised in these ultra um, patriarchal religions, one thing that is stuck playing on a loop within your body and your mind is dependent on a man, not dependent on a man, dependent on a man, not dependent on a man mm-hmm. and and just stuff like that where you literally are like sometimes your life is just playing out on a loop because where you're trying to take it is so counter to the programming that's in there and that's an added trauma but i mean it's it's so so much there are silver linings to all of that i'm sure Sure. within your community the way that people understand logical fallacies the ways that people can articulate the ways people understand themselves and the world by so wholly blindly subscribing believing seeing things one way and then climbing out of the painting looking at the painting, seeing it and becoming an entirely different person. I mean, the psychological gifts from fully exploring this, like I actually almost in my worldview believe that I chose it mm. as a teacher. Yeah. Because it's, yeah. it's it doesn't tickle, but mm-hmm. it's an amazing 
future. Yeah, I what would are- never change it, but even though it's hard, <laughs> yeah, I'd never change yeah. it. Yeah. Me too. I really wouldn't. What are some things that are some tangible tools? I, I wish I had gone into therapy immediately. Many people said I should, and I just discounted it because again, those tools of the religion are like, never advocate for yourself. So that was a muscle that was so atrophied. I would, didn't even know how to use it, but go see a therapist, all these other kinds of things. What are some tangible tools for people looking to work through this trauma? Um, I know that's a broad yeah. question because they can be at any stage or any unique situation, but yeah. Well, I think, you know, I said earlier, trauma is very subjective and so is healing. Um, so there is no one right way to heal. And and here's the 10 steps that you must do. And then you're, you're going to be okay. Um, healing is lifelong. And I don't say that to be an overwhelming statement. I actually mean it because that's a way that you can celebrate. So every little step that you take is healing. Um, if we're not looking to get to an end point with a period on it, it means that everything matters that much more. Um, And so every moment of every day, whether it's realizing a trigger and responding to it differently or setting a boundary or using my voice or engaging in this activity or not engaging in that activity, it's all healing. Um, You know, I do think therapy is a wonderful thing. Obviously, that's my profession. I know it's not feasible for everybody all the time, whether that's because of location or finances or, you know, you just haven't found a therapist that you connect with. One of the things we talked about earlier is that a lot of people don't understand religious trauma in the academic world. Religion is still looked at as this pro-social helpful factor. There is research coming out. And I would guess that within the next year or next, excuse me, 10 years, we will start to see um, academic level research coming out, talking about the actual, you know, downfalls potentially of religion and, and the harm that it can cause and the adversity and then subsequent trauma. But um, there is there isn't a lot there. And so therefore, there's not a lot of therapists that actually know that this exists. And and I think that's important because I think there's a lot of people coming out of these religions that are going, nobody's going to like take what I've been through seriously. And sometimes even though we don't need people to tell us what to do, we do need to know that our experience is valid and it matters and that really was that bad and that we're not just having a bad church experience. Um, we need to find a better church. It's that this, this had a profoundly deep impact. So I say that to go part of the healing process first is like, internally understanding and giving yourself permission to consider this is actually trauma. This is actually something that has had an impact. I'm not making too big of a deal. It is okay for me to be honest, accurate and honest about the things that I have gone through because it's only when we can tap into that truth that we even have access to heal. Um, And so, yeah, so therapists are wonderful. Social media is wonderful in the sense that you can look up hashtags like ex-evangelical or ex-Mormon or ex-JW or ex-Muslim and ex-religion, you can find people that are posting things and that might lead you to communities of people that are within the social media world. It might lead you to resources, whether that's podcasts, books, websites, that sort of thing. Those are almost always free and very accessible. You know, you can listen to them with headphones so that nobody else hears you. You don't have to tell people that you're doing this. I think that's a really important part of healing is finding a community that will believe you. Um, And that will maybe even share that, hey, this is my experience too. There's a fairly large community on Facebook called Exvangelical. 
And you don't have to be ex-evangelical to join it. You could be ex-JW, you could be ex-Mormon, you know, it doesn't matter. But it's a great community because you can go, oh, that person has a similar story and that actually helps a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the trauma piece of it, what most what most therapists even don't know is that religion or the word religious is just an adjective to help us better understand the type of trauma. It's no different than if we were to say sexual trauma, trauma from war, physical trauma, like those sorts of things. When we say, you know, trauma from war, all that's doing is helping us put into a context that this person experienced some things like this. And and so their responses are coming as a result of that. Now, there's maybe some unique pieces of religious trauma that might not be present in somebody who's dealing with trauma from war. Um, But overall, the way that we deal with the actual trauma is the same. So um, looking for, in my opinion, uh, therapists or um, people that are trained in body-based modalities, what that means is they go, okay, it's not just about thinking your way out of something or shifting your thoughts. It's about understanding how trauma impacts the body and how we have to process trauma through the body in order to be able to have those different experiences and create internal safety and stabilization. In my opinion, those are the best types of therapists to find um, because they really include the entire person. Um, So I think that can be really helpful. I'm also, like I said at the beginning, um, a co-founder of the Religious Trauma Institute. And while we are still very new, like part of what we are doing is creating uh, curriculum and workshops and seminars, both for um, healers, helpers, mental health advocates, even clergy, um, in order to help kind of understand this, but then also for survivors of these things. Again, we're not anti-religion. We are anti-harm, anti-abuse, anti-toxic messaging, those sorts of things. And then we're also partnering with other um organizations that um, have more specific focuses. We partner with the Reclamation Collective and they do a lot of support groups for people. It doesn't matter if you're coming out of whatever religion, they go, okay, we're going to have a deconstruction support group. And so what is what does that look like? You know, we're, we're talking about different aspects of deconstructing your faith and deconstructing how that lives in your body and those sorts of things. So there are some great free resources. There's some great really like... Uh, price conscious resources. Um, and if, if it feels too overwhelming to look for that, Instagram is an awesome place to start. <laughs> yeah. And TikTok. Yeah. Well. I didn't TikTok even know about well. TikTok until you really started talking about it. I just thought it was like funny videos, um, which I know there are because I see them. But when you were telling me about TikTok, I was like, oh, yeah, people can like things on there. Well, the reason why, if people are unfamiliar, is that it curates this for you page based on your engagement. Gotcha. So you start out and you never even have to follow anybody. It's just serving you stuff. And of course, you've wow. got the Charlie's and the dances. Mm-hmm. And if you just pass by that, it'll weed that kind of stuff out. And it's highly, mm. what's so funny about it is like people are going, oh my God, I didn't know I was bisexual until all of a sudden my for you page is like full of like, <laughs> I got on to buy TikTok or with TikTok or there's all kinds of like little pockets of it. So uh-huh. for me, you know, it's, it's been very educational tool because those are the kind of videos that I engage with and then I like, and then they feed me more of those. Yeah. So if you yeah. just want to go to the X of anything hashtags, just like you would Instagram and start there or just start liking stuff, it'll, it'll start feeding you that kind of stuff. And 
you'll find the pockets that exist there. Just a little. Mm-hmm. And I have um, on my website, and I, I can give it to you if you want to link it in the show notes. Um, I have a whole, like a pretty extensive list of resources that I've broken down into different topics, whether it's just trauma or religious trauma, podcasts, you know, um, go check out this person's videos on YouTube because they give tons of free trauma resources or, you know, like those sorts of things. And so people can go there too if they're like, I, I don't know where to start. Let me want to pick yeah. a book or whatever. That's awesome. So, yes. Yeah, I think that can be helpful. Absolutely. We'll leave all that in the show notes. Do you want to leave some here of where people can connect with you, your handles, your website? Sure. Yeah. I am probably the most active on Instagram. I try to do Twitter, but it just doesn't work. But I'm a whole lot snarkier on Twitter. Um, <laughs> so Instagram is probably the best place to find me. Laura Anderson Therapy is my handle. I try to post content every day about trauma. I like to give a little snippet about something that I've experienced because that's what we connect to as human beings is the story of other people. Um, I don't need to be the cold stone face professional behind the screen or the clipboard. Um, you're going to connect to me as an individual and that's where that healing can happen. So I really try to like use my own experiences combined with kind of the, the knowledge that I've learned to be able to connect to others. So I am on Instagram a lot. Um, yeah, you can, Laura E. Anderson is my Twitter page. handle the same. It's not too long. It's Laura A. Anderson, but I think it's in my link tree. Like you can just click over there. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, So it's not as fun as as Instagram. Like you won't see as much, but except for my snarky comments. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then my website is Laura. What did you say? I've never gotten into Twitter. Is it good? You know, you like it's really valuable. Um, so like I said, when I was coming out of all the faith stuff many years ago, obviously that was not a thing that there was. And so really the way that I got connected to some of the ex-religious communities was through Twitter. So I'm actually quite close to like some of the louder voices. Like we've connected on more of a personal level. And I'm now kind of at that point where I'm like, I think I've outgrown this. Like I don't I don't need to hear everybody's rants and subtweets, and I, I don't know what all of that means. Um, so I go on sometimes and post snarky things just as an outlet, um, and I, I manage the Religious Trauma Institute page on there also. Um, but yeah, so you can find me on there. I'm just not super active. Um, and then my website is Laura Anderson Therapy also. So Instagram and, and um, my website are the same handle. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so so much, Laura. This was so fun. <laughs> this was good. I feel like. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I was kind of like we we went everywhere. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> so much more we could get to. Like I said, I think before we press record, you could really truly do an entire podcast about these topics, mm-hmm. between anecdotal and the trauma and the systemic and the history and where it's going and what people can do, you know, to help the system, not just their individual healing, but the collective. Mm-hmm. Our- broke everyone's eardrums. I know I broke mine. (laughs) Anyway, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much again. You are so welcome. It was good to be here. Thank you. A huge congrats to you. If you made it all the way through this episode, especially in one sitting, Um, that's really rare for me on a podcast this long, but if I'm interested, I definitely will stay. So I hope that's you. Thank you so much to Laura. It was such a treat and pleasure to have her here to discuss this topic that is so passionate to me. I hope that 
minds were open, hearts were open, and this message that is so important to be received was received. I would love to hear from you. Laura would love to hear from you, connect with you, any feedback that you have, any interesting insights. Love, love, love to hear. You can reach out to me on Instagram at Natalie Q, TikTok at natalie.q. Um, I've got a life coach and podcaster Facebook page that I never use, but Cal, if that's your platform, go for it. My website, natalieq.com, where you can find my accountability journal. I would just be just love to hear from you and the meditations on YouTube. So um, have the best day. Thank you for your ratings, reviews, subscribes, sharing to a friend, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>